0: So we are live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special Dan on Kubernetes stream. Very happy to be here with you folks today. We talk a lot about technologies, but these technologies can't work if there aren't people behind them, and particularly if there aren't people who are, if we don't have people who are motivated, if we don't have people who are compassionate, if we don't have people who know how to listen uh, when they really need to, to listen, not just with their ears, but with a lot more than that. We've been going through a crazy, unprecedented situation since March of 2020. We've all suffered at different times from uncertainty, from anxiety, from frustration, from fear, from not knowing what's going to come next. And we've seen this in our organizations. Despite very high salaries that companies can pay, we're seeing what's now being called the great resignation. People simply aren't interested enough in in some of their jobs and they're leaving. How can we build organizations that create a culture where people are really taking care of each other, know the red flags for things like burnout, and to really understand exactly what effects the pandemic has been having on us? I, for one, can totally acknowledge that my mental health has been an absolute roller coaster since March of 2020. And it's fluctuated between uh, extreme anger, happiness, making progress, sometimes not feel like I'm making any, um, have gone to therapy, have encouraged others to do the same, uh, have tried to take care of myself in different ways, have now would say I've uh, felt a better sense of balance. That's exactly what I wanted to open up this conversation we're going to be having today, with three people who I would say have probably been considering it a lot more deeply than I have um but very very happy to to get this started as usual folks if you want to ask questions feel free to put them in the youtube chat we'll try to get them uh, to them accordingly but today joined by by three wonderful people who i'm very excited to be having us with today i was just saying before we got started i really hope these are recurring conversations that we can be having and not just one-offs or also if they're conversations that are happening in other communities we're happy to promote them and get folks involved because these conversations really need to be happening First and foremost, I would like to introduce uh, kind of the reason how this got started. Erin uh, Grinstein is an associate professor at the University of San Francisco, who has done plenty of research about fear and anxiety on lots of different topics. And she's going to be kicking off the session sharing uh, some of her research. We're also joined by Andrea Dobson, who's the head of people at Container Solutions, a fantastic organization who I've been following on Twitter for quite a while and very, very excited to be interacting with her today. And last but certainly not least, the newest addition, at least to my network, is Julia Simon, who I got to see give a wonderful talk in KubeCon in in Los Angeles about burnout. And it went so well that, that Julia is now being kind of a victim of her own success, and is leading a burnout group in the CNCF Slack. If you wanna check that out, definitely recommend it. Um, they're, they're, they're meeting regularly to talk about these issues, to, to provide support, resources, get these things out in the open. Um, so very, very healthy dialogue. That being said, we do have a limited time today. Um, so I wanna start right off with Erin, uh, with who's gonna be showing us uh, a presentation, some of her research, and then we're gonna open up the conversation to hear from Andrea and Julia, what it's been like in their professional experience recently approaching these issues, starting conversations about them, guiding, asking the right questions, not necessarily having the right answers, right? But asking the right questions, how to create spaces, particularly the challenge of doing so in an, uh, in a remote environment, which provides additional challenges that we just don't have if you know we're together in office, some advantages and some disadvantages. But anyway, Erin, um, it's all yours, go for it, share your screen, let's jump right into your presentation.
1: Thank you so much. Okay. Screens shared, everyone can see? Okay, great. Thank you. So thank you um, so much for having me. Um, As Bart said, I'm Erin Grinstein. I'm an associate professor at USF, and my research does largely examine fear and mental health. Usually I look at things like fear of crime, fear of bullying, fear of discriminatory violence, and things like that. But since the pandemic, there's been so much more interest in fear of COVID. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about fear and also social isolation, which is also something that I look at sometimes, especially because I do a lot of my research on older adults um, and how these have affected mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I just wanted to start with a really brief model for us to consider. Fear, social isolation, and of course other stressors are all associated with mental health. And these relationships are bi-directional. Fear can lead to worse mental health, but worse mental health can also lead to increased fear. And the same is true for other determinants of mental health. Of course, these also all interact with each other as fear can lead to social isolation and vice versa. What we're interested in today is um, the effects of fear and social isolation on mental health, specifically during COVID-19. And I'm guessing that a lot of you can relate personally to this topic, as Bart already mentioned. I think we've all experienced fear, social isolation, changes to our mental health um, a good amount during the pandemic. And so I'm going to start by talking about fear. So, I put an interactive question in here just for everybody um, to answer. You can either go to the link or you can scan the QR code uh, just to get a pulse and also to let us all know that we are not alone in experiencing this fear if my hypotheses are right here.
0: Yeah. There will be a a slight delay, but they'll get there, don't worry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, my point here is that, you know, and I'm not sure I didn't have the raw numbers up, so I'm not sure how many people have been able to answer yet. But as we can see so far, 100% of respondents have experienced fear of COVID since March 2020. And that's a really natural feeling, I think, for all of the obvious reasons. What is fear? Fear is something we've all experienced, but usually when I ask people, they can't really define it. Fear is a core emotion that we often think of negatively, but in reality, it actually serves to help us survive. Fear helps us flee from danger. It keeps us from walking down dark alleys at night. It helps us run away from large animals. Evolutionarily, fear has served a really important role. However, sometimes we feel a disproportionate amount of fear, which then crosses the line from protective to harmful. In general, infectious diseases inspire more fear than chronic diseases do. On average, we're probably all more afraid of getting COVID than we are of getting heart disease. And part of that is due to the R-naught or the replication number, the reproductive number. Early estimates of the original variant of COVID placed the R-naught at around two. So that means that for every person who gets COVID, they'll infect roughly two more people. Recent estimates of Delta placed the R-naught at around eight. So it's getting more infectious. We're not sure about this new variant. Another reason people were afraid of COVID more than let's say something like heart disease is because of the mode of transmission. It's fast and it's invisible. Maybe with something like heart disease, we all know that certain lifestyle risk factors like diet and exercise are associated with it, but we make choices because the consequences are far off in the future. It's easy to indulge in a delicious, unhealthy meal today when you're you're not going to see heart disease for many, many years. But COVID has a quick turnaround between infection and disease, and also we can't see it happen. It, It happens to us invisibly, and that leads it to be scarier. Another aspect of COVID that seems to inspire fear is the severity of disease. When most people get COVID, they recover, but there is a significant portion who go on to be hospitalized. And even those who do go on to be hospitalized, many recover, but then there's also a significant number who die. In 2020, a year in which COVID-19 was really only widespread for part of the year, COVID was still the third leading cause of death in the United States. And in 2021, we're on track for COVID to be the second leading cause of death in the U.S. So even though most people do recover, it is scary to have something that does have significant severity. So fear in COVID has become so concerning that there's actually been a new validated seven-item scale assessing fear of COVID-19 that's being used in research studies and has been used for about a year and a half now. In some ways, fear is really protective when it comes to COVID. Fear of getting infected leads us to engage in more mitigation strategies, like wearing a mask social distancing, hand washing, all of those things that you've heard more about in the last year and a half than ever before in your life. Um, And we're seeing that research actually shows that COVID-19 is associated with positive behavior changes in terms of reducing risk of COVID-19. However, fear can also be harmful. Recent research has shown that people reporting greater levels of fear of COVID-19 also reported worse mental health symptoms, um, including depression and anxiety. Fear of COVID-19 has also been associated with increased stress and traumatic stress. We've also seen disparities in experiencing fear of COVID-19. Um, A recent survey showed that women, racial and ethnic minority groups, people who live in families with kids under 18 and foreign born respondents reported higher levels of fear of COVID-19 compared with their counterparts. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about social isolation, which is the lack of contact between an individual and society. One more question for you all. How many of you experienced social isolation at any point during the COVID-19 pandemic? Once again, we're at 100%. I'm guessing we are not going to drop much below that if we drop at all. I think everybody has experienced some level of social isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic for obvious reasons like lockdowns. Like fear, social isolation is not new. These are public health problems that we've been looking at for a long time. It's just that the um, area in which these things are happening has been changing because we didn't have COVID-19 before. But social isolation has been a problem for people of all ages for a long time, but it's particularly been a problem for older adults. Before COVID-19, approximately one quarter of older adults suffered from social isolation. COVID-19 really created an environment where the rest of us began to feel in large numbers what older people had been experiencing for years. Older adults are at increased risk of social isolation because they tend to live alone Uh, more often than younger adults. They experience loss of family and friends at greater numbers and they suffer from chronic illnesses which can prevent them from being connected with society. So starting in March of 2020 in the United States, we were bombarded with messaging about how staying home saves lives, right? I'm sure that none of these seem um new to anybody right stay home save lives this is the messaging that we got uh there was even a stay home save lives google doodle on april 4th of 2020 shortly after lockdowns began at least in the bay area um and you know i'm going to talk about this a lot this is not to say that i think that the lockdowns were bad i think they saved lives it's been proven that they saved lives um we know from a public health perspective that staying apart and staying home did save lives. That doesn't mean there weren't negative emotional mental consequences as well. So from all the work that's already been done on social isolation and older adults, we know that social isolation is associated with a ton of adverse health outcomes. Um, It's been associated with a 29% increase of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, Social isolation has been associated with approximately a 50% increased risk of dementia. Um, Social isolation can significantly increase a person's risk of premature death from all causes, Um, and it's on par with things like smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity in terms of the risk for increased death. We also know that we all became a lot more socially isolated during the pandemic. It's been estimated that between March of 2020 and March and May of 2021, um, the COVID-19 pandemic caused about 4 billion people across the world to be confined to their homes. This number is increasing as more countries are now experiencing new waves of outbreaks and governments are imposing new restrictions. And so research has shown that there was a direct effect of longer socially isolated periods on worse mental health during COVID-19. The longer people were socially isolated, the worse their mental health outcomes were. Space inadequacy was also associated with worse mental health during these periods of social isolation. But having both offline, so for example, a phone call and online contacts buffered the effects of social isolation on mental health during these lockdown periods. This relationship has been seen not just among older adults or adults at all, but we're seeing these same associations among children and adolescents, that the longer the period of isolation, the worse depression and anxiety are getting in kids and adolescents. One really interesting study of college students that I saw found something surprising, and that was that students with pre-existing mental health issues didn't actually experience huge declines in their mental health during these periods of lockdown, but it was students without pre-existing mental health conditions that actually saw worsening mental health during the lockdowns, during social isolation. So it's not always the people who we think might be the most affected who end up experiencing the worst outcomes. Okay, so we know a lot about fear and mental health and social isolation and mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic, but I just wanna show some numbers related to mental health and talk a little bit about prevention. So in the United Kingdom, basically we've seen across the board in country after country after country that mental health outcomes worsened during the pandemic. Here's a study from the UK that showed the population prevalence of clinical significant levels of mental distress rose from almost 19% in 2018 to 2019 to 27% in April of 2020, which was approximately one month into UK's lockdown. We're seeing this across the world, so by contrast, in Saudi Arabia, the proportion of people experiencing major depressive disorder and anxiety increased between May and August of 2020 in those early months of the COVID-19 pandemic. And here's a study from the US that showed that from August 2020 through December of 2020, so during the pandemic, significant increases were observed in the percentages of adults who reported experiencing symptoms of anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, or at least one of these disorders. So we don't want to reduce all fear, right? Because as we talked about in the beginning, some fear is protective, but we wanna reduce fear that isn't leading people to be safer. Um, One idea is to screen for fear, especially among higher risk populations. So if a person screens positive either at a A health clinic visit or a mental health clinic visit, they could be referred to more mental health counseling to address the mental health consequences that we know result from experiencing these fears. Another paper I saw showed that there were positive effects of mindfulness on managing fear. So teaching mindfulness trainings could help people adequately manage the unhealthy fear without eliminating the positive protective effects of fear on their mitigation behaviors. Staying connected is really important. So research has shown that offline and online connections mitigated the effects of social isolation during the pandemic we need to build on existing networks that we already have. So for example, the Institute on Aging in San Francisco has a program called the Friendship Line and they've had this for years and years and years. And basically it's um, a phone line where older adults across the country can call and reach out and talk to a friendly voice. Um, they ramped up their operation during the COVID-19 pandemic because they knew that this was going to be in high demand. But they were able to build on this already existing resource. Um, we also can create new opportunities. So on a personal anecdote, every year I teach a class called Aging and Public Health, and we do a collaboration with an intergenerational dance company, um, which obviously has not been able to occur since um 2019. Uh, We pivoted to do this collaboration via Zoom. Here's a screenshot of my students and the the intergenerational dancers. we have dancers from roughly 18 to 80 in this intergenerational dance company. Um, And at first, the company director and I really thought that it would be good for the older adults who'd been in lockdown about a month, by the time we did this collaboration Um, but it was actually my students who came to me and said you know it's been a month since I've spoken to a new person it's been a month since I've had any social interaction with anybody that wasn't my roommate or my spouse or my teacher and I really needed this so you know pivoting to these online formats even though they're clunky they're certainly better than not doing them. Um, our medical care system and our health care, mental health care system specifically needs to be improved so that those with these severe mental health care needs that result from fear and isolation, particularly in the in, in the context of the disparities that we're seeing um, can be seen. We have a shortage of mental health care providers and many people have inadequate insurance to seek care even if they do have um, health insurance. And of course there are those who are uninsured altogether. So we should be increasing our capacity now so that we know that we can meet these growing needs because we know that the needs are growing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't take too much time. Um, I especially wanna thank Bart for the invitation and thank all of you for taking the time to attend this talk. Here's all my contact information. I would love to connect with anybody about these topics um, or any others related uh, after this. So thank you so much.
0: Fantastic, leave it up there for now, just so folks can take a look at that and write maybe write that stuff down. Happy to put that in the description afterwards, as well as we'll be putting links for Andrea and Julia um, fantastic. Uh, so staying to the point, we get some different, you know, some different perspectives on this. I also think it's interesting too that you incorporated other countries. Obviously, here as well too, we have one person who's in Spain, one person who's in the UK, uh, someone who's in Canada, someone in the United States. So it's been different in each country. The word itself, lockdown, it applies very differently depending on the context. Here in Spain, for over two months, we could only leave our houses to go to the supermarket, a pharmacy, or the hospital, and only one person at a time. In other countries, is a little bit different. Anyway, we've all we've all been going through this in different ways. Now, what I would like to do though is I would like to turn the conversation um, over to uh, I want to I want to ask a couple of questions to basically the same question to Andrea and Julia. See how they respond, and then Aaron, I want you to be thinking about what questions you can ask them in addition to that. Um, but just first reactions, Andrea, from what you've seen here. How does that resonate with you as, a, uh, you know, we can say on a personal level, but then also at an organizational level inside container solutions The stuff that you saw here, anything that you found surprising, anything that you like to add? Um, thanks, Bat, for the
2: introduction. Yeah. So for me, it's not surprising because I, I did study psychology, uh, clinical psychology, and uh, my degrees in that. So for me, this is, uh, it sounds very familiar. Um and one thing that really caught my attention, which is something we've seen quite a bit, that sometimes with those college students who have never had a setback in their whole life, then all of a sudden they have do have a setback and they don't know how to cope with it. Versus the, the, the maybe the students who have actually had some more um setbacks and, and have been oh sorry this is my son <laughs> but this, but this, is, this is the point this is one of the gifts of, one of the
0: blessings of covid is that it's is a <laughs> opportunity. Did, you, did you plan that andrea that no fun. i actually <laughs> did not
2: i, I swear <laughs> to god i did not um no that that was the one thing that i always find really interesting that sometimes if we've had hardship in the past we sometimes are able to bounce back or from that situation more easily we can adapt we can have these mental models to say to each other to ourselves almost like hey this is going to pass this will be fine I'll get over this or I've got maybe tools in my you know in my box to say oh actually I've been through this before this has really helped in the past I'm going to try to do that again but for the ones who've never ever had any of this it's like what is this? And this is the and it hits them sometimes very hard. So that really resonated with me in the sense that I can really recognise that in when I worked in the clinic um, uh, that this was sometimes really hard for those the ones never ever suffered before in their lives. Um, so yeah, that's basically one of the key things. Um, but most of, most of the presentation, great. It's really nice to see such an in depth conversation, and it's really nice to explain that anxiety is really a good part of life. We need it. We need it to survive. It's it's essential to to, to have it. Uh, like uh, Julia really explained really well. So thank you for doing that, um, Julie. Yeah.
0: I think, I think, no, I think touching on what you mentioned is that, because I, I liked how the presentation started out with that by Aaron explaining, look, fear is a natural part of life. It's a defense mechanism. And that was the other thing when I started talking to Aaron before all this is like, you know what? Are we talking, okay, the situation is very unique. However, these things of, you know, isolation, fear, anxiety, these are not things that that have just been born out of the pandemic. The pandemic has perhaps created new manifestations, um, different kinds of challenges, as you mentioned, Andrea, as well. Generational gaps, perhaps in not having some of the coping mechanisms. Or what I like to say a lot of times is uh, the degree of emotional and psychological vocabulary, comfort zones to be able to get these things out in the open we're okay with telling our employers, you know, that we're that we're sick or that we have a cold. Are we okay of saying, you know what, I'm I'm really not in my best, you know, m- mental mode right now, or I think I kind of need some space? Is that enough to justify giving someone time off? These are things that have been discussed. Can we move to a four-day work week? There are lots of things to unpack there. Now, uh, Julia, I'd like to turn over to you your reactions. How have you seen this as an HR professional? Um, what do you what do you get out of Aaron's presentation?
3: Yeah, I think I would echo um, what Andrea said. I mean, I think it's, it's important to understand the vocabulary behind it and also to understand that all of these things are normal and part of we're all, it's like unprecedented that like the entire world is experiencing the same, basically the same thing. We all have travel restrictions, we, you know, we in varying degrees, but it's pretty amazing that you can talk to anyone about COVID and everybody knows what you're talking about, right? That's, that's a pretty rare thing. So I think um, it's great to have the vocabulary to name what those things are, to acknowledge that this is a challenging time and we're all experiencing it. So I think it's, it's really important to call that out. And I, what resonated for me was really around sort of the, the idea of some of the, the, not just the generational gaps, but the visible uh, visible minorities and other people who are being impacted by this more than others. So I think that, um, like, for example, in my situation, I'm a single parent. So when schools don't exist um, and you have to work full time, like, how do you how do you do that? Like, it's great that our kids can, you know, be part of our work life, but that does not lead to effective work (laughs) or productivity in any way. So I think that was, um, you know, that's like a really important uh, piece to understand. It's like, who is this really affecting and how can we actually start helping those people? Um, Unfortunately, it's it's mostly women and visible minorities.
0: This is a good point. Um, And once again, and this is where we kind of get into the challenges, and we could talk about this for weeks. Is that oh now you're at home, you don't have commute time, uh, you know you can take care of your meals. That means you can work even more. And you know it just direct access and internet connection is like does that really replicate the conditions of my office or you know things like that. And and then you know and there can be there can be different elements that are thrown in there. But like you said, particularly in the case of you know we smile and laugh when we see uh, you know Andrea's beautiful child coming and giving her a hug. But <laughs> there's also the flip side of that, which is, as you rightfully mentioned, uh, Julia is. If you gotta, you know, all of a sudden, not only be a parent, but you're also the teacher, and your children are studying via Zoom. I say this because I've seen not firsthand experience, but seeing my nieces uh, who were five and eight years old when the pandemic started, uh, trying to do kindergarten via Zoom and with both working parents at the same time is absolute. It's absolute chaos. Um, so the once again, unprecedented factors there. Now, you mentioned a really good point, um, Aaron, about the lack of. lack of the first of all just a lack of psychologists and then perhaps also the the issue of of resources whether or not insurance covers it this is dealt with in different countries but i think what we can all agree at least what i've been hearing in spain is that it's very difficult to get an appointment with a psychologist nowadays and so then you try to think like should they encourage you know, uh, students that are in their final year of university, just as you mentioned, uh, Aaron, just that it's someone that you could call to have someone to listen to you. Not necessarily that they're gonna be an expert to give a diagnosis and things of that nature, but how how can we tackle this at a societal level, but then further from that too, at an organizational level, in companies, can we expect to see human resources, people, department, talent, whatever we wanna call it, getting more support, taking a more active role, government's getting involved, not an easy question, but how would you approach that?
2: Is that for the whole
0: panel? About, that's, for, uh, that's for everybody, for but everybody first. Yeah,
2: definitely. I mean, even pre-COVID, the mental health services were already strained. So, and I don't think I speak only for the Netherlands and the UK. I think the whole mental health never been really been prioritized ever. I
0: agree. And um, totally totally loaded with privilege. Like, exactly, that's right? And,
2: and yeah. not only that, people also saw it like, oh, if I go speak to a psychologist, I'm weak. I'm not, you know, this is... Um, I don't want to admit to myself I have this. Is you know I don't want to sh- show stigma. any yeah, any yeah. sign of that a stigma. So and uh, at the whole COVID um, and uh, the hidden pandemic of the mental health issues, that will only like load on to the already you know the scarce resources we have on that. And I feel as a, as a company, especially in 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 our industry, right, when we really rely heavily on on people's Heads to function properly to be creative to be innovative to solve things in a way that never you know nobody's ever thought of that really requires a lot of support from an organization to get the best out of it and sometimes we need to teach our people to look better after themselves because sometimes they're bringing back habits from maybe university or a company that was not as focused on mental health. Um, And you have to de-learn those type of like habits Mm -hmm. of working long hours, not taking breaks, not looking after themselves. Um, And that requires support, very much so. And I think that's something that is, I believe, is the right investment to make as a company. And luckily our company does feel that as well because we have, um, we had, well, I was a coach. When I started at this company, I was someone who was actually doing the coaching, uh, but we've now actually... Uh, I've handed that over because my role's changed, but we have two two people on staff who can provide coaching. And we do know when I'm the one who's the most knowledgeable when it comes to the clinical disorders or the DSM disorders. So when they feel like, oh, are we are we crossing a border or a line? How do we refer? That's when we refer to Local health uh, health clinicians um, for support um, when it, when it feels like you know I'm I'm officially able to diagnose um, in both countries in both the UK and the Netherlands so I still use that knowledge to really make sure that people are directed to the right services on time
0: very very good right
2: and it's really important to understand that burnout is not an official DSM diagnosis as of today still it's just a gateway to the DSM and maybe sorry, Erin, I've I've completely got you to, your names wrong, but Erin. Um, <laughs> but the, but the point is, we all agree much, we're, we're working. No, it's, That's it's, the point it's, uh, you probably notice very much that burnout is a bit of the gateway to entering into either anxiety or um, the major depressive disorders. Um, so I do feel bad to answer your question in that sense. Obviously, I, I live in the UK now, so don't get me started on any you know, governmental type of discussions, because I don't want to go there. Uh, But definitely on on an organizational level, I think we can definitely have those conversations very seriously. Yeah,
0: I think think that's a great point. And I really like that as well. And it's tough, because when we're talking about very emotionally charged subjects, sometimes it's hard not to want to bring the government and not to say point fingers, but to say like, hey, we can do better. And Aaron, I really liked how you addressed that in a calm and cool way, saying, you know, the lockdowns, whether you like it or not, we can see this. We can also see that it's, it's let's try to leave politics out of this as much as possible. Um, Andrea, you were getting on the track about burnout. So I, now I do want to turn it over to Julia because Julia, can you give us a little bit of background about your experience with burnout, what you've been doing with the CNCF, a quick summary of your talking KubeCon. And then I want to get it back over to Erin to see what she's seeing in, in California. But anyway, let's start with you, Julia.
3: Yeah. Okay, that's a lot to get into a quick summary, but I'll do my best. So basically, um, in 2019, actually, so pre-pandemic, I um, had a burnout. Um, it wasn't, as Andrea mentioned, wasn't just the burnout, because burnout is defined as a workplace situation so for me it was more layers than that so basically it led to depression and so i took four months off and we talk you know there's a lot of a whole other separate conversation that can be had around you know resources and what kind of support uh people need to be able to do that because again it comes from a great place of privilege to be able to um have the resources to not work for for that amount of time but basically i made it my full-time job to fix myself Um, and that was a a big challenge and a huge learning curve because it actually doesn't work that way. And no matter all the wellness that you do and all, you know, it's not just one thing or, you know, baths and walks that will fix that. Um, so I, I really threw myself into that and really had to give my time myself time to, to come back from that. So I did go back to work. I changed roles. I did a bunch of different types of coaching. Um, and then I ended up. Um, And then I ended up being back at the office and COVID started. And at the same time, I was encouraged to submit a talk about something for a conference. And I was like, oh, you know what? I should talk about this because nobody's talking about it. I felt like completely alone all the time throughout the whole journey because nobody I knew was really experiencing what I was experiencing. So I started doing the talk um, and I created this and I did it at a few conferences last year, including KubeCon. And I just wanted to let people know that they're not alone and that this experience is not a stigma or not a taboo topic that we, I think it was alluded to earlier. So it's something that I'm really working hard to change the perspective of how we talk about mental health. So I was actually encouraged um, with another person in the CNCF, um, Thomas McGonigal, to start this burnout group. Um, And so we're doing peer support, basically. So we currently have weekly meetings, uh, TBD on if those will stay that way at that cadence. But it's been really wonderful. The feedback I've gotten really is just like, "Thank you for saying this," and "Thank you for making me feel like I'm not broken or bad." Or you know, it's really dealing with the the humanity behind some of these, uh, you know, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be. So the support group is is really wonderful. I'm I I adore everyone who comes. I adore that they're sharing what they're going through. I think it's really powerful. Um, even though we're not professionals, it's really powerful to know that somebody else that there's a shared experience, like that's really what ties us together that ha- gives us that connection. And that's really the main thing that we're that I think we're getting out of it. So in a nutshell, that's what it
0: is. That was a really good nutshell. Excellent summary. And I think one of the things you said, though, which is a great point, and what we kind of been addressing collectively is that getting these things out in the open. You know that a lot of times there's once again there's the stigma, there's the shame, there's the guilt, there's the I went to Catholic school and we never talked about this, and I did go to Catholic school, um, but but anyway, and and it depends on your family. There's a lot, and so once again, I'm very lucky to have had a family that's been very open to the idea of, of of various people going to therapy at different points in their lives and being open about this stuff. Not everybody has that, and so that's why that's why I go back to the to the to the there is this element of privilege, or at least it's been in my case has been that's been there. Now, um, taking this a little bit further, Aaron, you work, in, you, you work in the Bay Area. Obviously, it's no secret that there's you know, a lot of high-power tech companies. And all of us, in, in one way or another, are, are connected to that, either geographically or through our work. In order for organizations to be better equipped, I know you mentioned some of the things of you know, what are the red flags. How, you mentioned also some of the things that, uh, that people can use to be, have the capacity in order to avoid some of these problems, to catch them you know, before they start. If if you had uh, to approach organizations or maybe you've been approached by organizations, what are the what are the issues that they seem to be facing and what kind of recommendations might you make? Because like we, we've been talking about burnout. We're seeing this thing of the great resignation. Um, what concrete steps would you say before you start anything? You definitely want to do this. What might that be? Yeah, so uh, um, I feel
1: less equipped to answer that than Andrea and Julia because they they actually are doing this work um, and I'm really inspired listening to the work that is being done in, in these two companies at least and I assume in more companies. I think that like one, I, I think Tech companies in general, and again, I don't work in a tech company. This is all anecdotal from just being in the Bay Area and and knowing a lot of people who do work in tech companies. But they seem a little bit more open to these types of benefits. Um, I think more it needs to extend beyond tech, right? Like all of these other companies need to be thinking about these types of initiatives, e- peer coaching or peer support groups. I mean, these are pretty, I I don't want to say basic because they're, they're fantastic, but, and they're things that other people aren't doing, but it's not reinventing the wheel, right? Like we know that these things work. We know that they help people and yet most people aren't doing them. So I would say, look to what companies are doing in, in successful models and just have normal. And again, I'm in the US, I maybe things are different in other countries. But in the US, you know, we really don't focus on mental health very well. Um, It is still stigmatized. And I worry a little bit about the fact that we already have a huge backlog of people who need mental health support. And I think it's going to increase because from what I've seen, again, anecdotally, younger generations are much more open to talking about these things. Um, I've been teaching a long time. And when I first started teaching, a student would never talk to me about a mental health issue. They would never come to me and say, "Um, I am really not in a good place right now. And I don't think it's in my best interest to come to class tonight. Is there anything we can do? And now I get that all the time. And so I think that not only, I mean, and that's a fantastic thing, but it's going to lead to, even more of a backlog in terms of the amount of services that we have versus the demand because younger generations are more comfortable talking about these things and they're more comfortable seeking services so again you know what governments can do I could talk about you know mental health policy in the U.S. at least for a long time and all the things that we've done wrong to get us in this situation, that's going to be a much harder shift to turn around. And I think the idea of individual companies, or at least maybe the corporate workplace as a whole, changing the culture around what we do to support staff is probably a, a better an easier opportunity and um, maybe a more productive one because it will feel different. I'm guessing that companies that have those types of benefits in place see less turnover. Um, I wonder if you're all seeing the same amounts of resignation that the rest of us are seeing in our workplaces. Um, it just seems to me that it's in the best interest of people and it's in the best interest of the company. So I think again, you know, long-winded way of saying My best advice is just to start doing something because i don't think most places are doing anything like what your companies are doing
0: this is a very good point and i think like you said and i think this is once again a position of privilege and also a position of leadership that tech companies that can have in order because of having some of these practices and also you know in, in spain seeing some companies having to shift to remote working was like literally impossible like and and people were the you know things weren't updated like they were not equipped to do it so what did companies do as soon as they could start getting people to go back to the office they did um and anyway, so we we've seen that play out in in different ways but i think like you said is that a lot of it is it doesn't mean that you have to have a perfect system set up but you just have to ask in our organization what is the first baby steps that we can take towards uh you know create a culture about this whether it's self check-ins whether it's and I, I hear you on that too, it's very interesting because we were talking about young people earlier, that young people are better equipped to talk about this stuff and that there's more of a more openness about it. And they can actually be in a position of leadership inside companies to get those conversations out. Whereas for maybe some folks that are um, uh, you know, a little bit older that it's, it's not common or as common for them to have those conversations. Um, so that's interesting as well. Um, Andrea, to take it over to you, I know you mentioned some of the things you have going on in container solutions, are there other in- initiatives that you have on the horizon or other things you haven't mentioned yet? I know that, and obviously based on the growth of your company, um, your role initially as well too. And, and that's something that struck me about Container Solutions is, is saying, yeah, we have psychologists, like, and that's not a problem. Like that's a benefit. And that's, there are many, many different elements of that. Could you maybe talk about a little bit more about that in detail and why Container Solutions really, you know, puts emphasis on that? Oh, I think you're muted. Famous COVID sentence. Yeah, sorry.
2: So yeah, um, well, I mean, it's it's a little bit of how you see human beings, like a humanistic view of of um of management. And that is about helping and supporting people. Uh, we want people to self-actualize, develop and grow. I know this is very old-fashioned, but we don't see people as um as as products or resources that's why i'm also not head of hr because that would go against everything that i as a person would stand for i don't see them as a resource i see them as a person as a person that has needs and desires and things that they want to achieve in their lives and at the same time they'll have restraints that holds them back and how can we get them to that place without breaking them right this is i think a key key part of it so When COVID hit, we obviously we're a professional service company, so our income really depends on the billability of of our engineers. But we wanted really to make sure that they felt they could say no to meetings. So we installed this meeting free Wednesday. We gave people extra days off to replenish their energy. Um, I know in the U.S. there's not much days off there is, but in Europe people have 25 days of leave. That's okay. Um, so twenty-five days the annual a <laughs> year. Yeah, yeah, Stella. So, uh, sorry, that that's was my daughter facing. Okay. <laughs> this is okay.
0: Andre, you played this uh, very well. This is,
2: really well. <laughs> this is like, extremely well played. I planned. have too really many kids, planned. but this is the problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, babe, that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, sorry, continue. Do so you about, was, day, about days off in Europe versus the U S days off in Europe.
2: And even in Canada, we offer our employees more days off than is statutory obli- obligatory. So if organizations can start to do that, spend their money in that and give people that time off, right. Um, Cause that recovery, that is so essential. If you are stressed and there is no moment for you to just replenish your energy and it's always go, go, go. It's, you, don't re, you don't come back from that. And sometimes when you come back from burnout to the same workplace, all those habits just get reactivated. This is just purely how people learn. Um, it's almost like an addictive type of behavior. You just get re- in, reintroduced with those uh, stimuli that will make you behave the same way. So if organizations don't really strongly like, set these rules from the get-go so prevent burnout versus treat it, because that's always the best way to go about it. Um, it's hard for they'll lose people because they feel like every time I come back to work, I'll fall in that same trap again. So I need to leave. Um, and 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 so what's your long term strategy as a company to retain your talent? Um You're on camera. Yes. (laughs) Victory. Victory. Um, So what's your long-term strategy to retain talent? And that is an investment in these type of things. Because in the end, that's why people want to stay with you. Because they are engaged with work. They know they can take a day off when they need to. We don't let people do overtime. If they do an extra day work, we actually say, look, we don't pay you out. Just take the day off the next day. So it's really these small little incentives that you want to almost nudge people to look after themselves.
0: Yeah, and I think this is, this is a great point because I've, I've also, my, my background uh, prior to being able the data on Kubernetes community was in HR, talent management, et cetera. Yeah. And every company will tell you about how they invest in their employees and that people are number one and we're people centric and we're people focused and all these kind of things. I encourage everybody, whether they're working in tech or not, if you're in a job interview and you're hearing about this stuff, Ask them for a, some detailed information about the practices that they have in place. And always as well, too, for any organization to be transparent, don't just have the, you know, the HR staff running interviews. Get people, your own employees in there and have them say it themselves. If it's really true, you don't have to force it. You know what I mean? So I think, I think uh I, I really, really agree with that. And every organization is gonna have a different approach. That's fine. Uh, it, that, not copy to... paste. And because there's too much copy pasting, and that's and that's ridiculous. So be honest with yourselves, find out what's works best with you for you. In the case of container solutions, I know particularly you've got people all over the world. I I don't I'm maybe in one or two continents <laughs> container solutions, but I think that's slowly disappearing too. So that provides a unique, and then as well because you, like you said, different time off in different countries, different yeah. approaches to some of these things. Yeah. Um, so that's a difficult, a different balancing act yeah. than another company would have. Um, yeah, absolutely. Now I'd like to turn I'd like to turn the next question to to Julia that we got from that we got from the chat. Um, now. Well, uh, in inside organizations, and this came from one of our greatest uh, community members, Tim Vandekier, uh, big shout out to Tim, is, you know, in, we're, if we're talking about tech companies, a lot of these companies are going through technical changes, technical challenges, bringing new things on. Um, and so imagining that, once again, anticipating, because this is a big thing, and we're the data on Kubernetes community. Kubernetes is a very complicated uh, technology to work with. The onboarding process is what it is. Um, that's why our community exists, is to make that easier. But what I find interesting about Tim's point is that with the introduction of a new technology into a company, how can companies be better prepared to anticipate the the amount of stress that's going to be added, not just looking at things, well, we'll have this project done in 323 hours, or I need this license and this kind of stuff. How can we really add a stronger human factor into understanding when those changes are going to be happening? Julia, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's
3: a really interesting and important point. And actually, um, when I was working at CloudOps, that's one of the, you know, professional services, Andrea mentioned this earlier, like, it's hard to know exactly what work is going to fit into what amount of time. So I think it's it's important to consider the human factor, because it does change things. There is training and ramping up and, you know, onboarding and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's not enough of an emphasis, um, like you know, we want to hit the ground running, we want get, to get going really quickly, but there has to be an element of uh, allowing for adaptation and learning and time and shadowing a mentorship or a buddy system or some kind of, um, there has to be time allocated to that. And I think often that gets overlooked um, because the human element, again, when we talk about fear or anxiety, it's like, if you have to do something and you don't know how to do it, you know, that's really stressful. So I think, especially in the times that we're in now there, there has to be a fine balance between, okay, let's get this person being feeling good and effective and actually really contributing to the team and to the project. And also, you know, we're allowing enough time for them to, ramp up and learn all the new things. So I think there's like a fine balance. And I think there's a lot of people who have that experience, especially with some of these newer technologies, even if you've been in IT for a long time, you know, Kubernetes is new. There's only a certain amount of time that you could have been working on Kubernetes because it's just a whole new, it's a new project. So I think, you know, going based on experiences, and of course now there are trainings and there are, you know, certifications and all these other things that you can, um, that you can invest in for people. But I think it's a really important point to have that, that time for learning as well as you know, career development, et cetera. But this is like my big point, like the human experience in work needs to have, I think as far as I'm concerned, a more important place than, oh, just the technical and just make this work. As you mentioned earlier, Bart, like if the humans behind the tech aren't happy and healthy and effective, like essentially our industry
0: wouldn't, wouldn't really exist or wouldn't really be thriving. This is a great point. If if we're not, you know, putting the right kind of gasoline into our cars, how can we possibly expect them to function? And uh, and another thing as well, too, like you said, is, you know, get that time in there. Get the, And and I really like the word that you use there, to experience, because we talk all the time about developer experience, about customer experience, about user experience. What about employee experience? And I really like this thinking from a, perspe- a design perspective. What is What kind of environment is going to... to really help them do what it is that they need to do to feel supported, to feel that they're important, that their contributions are valuable. At the end of the day, yes, we all need jobs to pay the bills and things of that nature. But considering the the speed at which a lot of this is going, as you said as well too, very few people have said, oh, Kubernetes is a joke, it's super easy, you can learn in two days. I haven't heard anybody. And even when we talk about the so-and-so is an expert in Kubernetes, th- some people say that doesn't even exist because of how new it is, even though it's been around for some time, very you know uh, quickly evolving. Now, we are unfortunately getting a little bit towards the end. I, want, I wanted to ask Aaron a question, and this is a question in order to get more questions, um, because I don't think a lot of this is about answers, is about getting other questions out in the open. And I, and I also, once again, going back, I'm just really, it's funny and it just feels silly that, you know, it's, we've been in this situation now for a year and nine months. Uh, anyway, it's going to be two years in March. Um, and I've yet to actually have a concrete presentation like the one that Aaron gave, where it just kind of puts all this stuff together. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Because it's been so exhausting because we get, uh you know our friend from university sends us fake news through whatsapp or email and, and we have to double check things and it gets exhausting and um the restrictions change every five minutes and but actually just get this okay this is actually what's been going on what i've been trying to say is that giving us the opportunity to sort of look this situation in the eyes and say okay this is what this is right yes it's changing it's evolving but that's part of the nature of, of what we're experiencing so like i said erin what are the questions that you think as individuals as well as organizations that we should be keeping in mind, that we should keep, you know, uh, not on the back burner, but things that we can get started in a more immediate sense?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think one thing that I'm always curious about from the organizational perspective is why more organizations aren't doing the things that Andrea and Julia are already doing. Um, You know, Andrea, put it into terms of like thinking about people and how people are are units in and of themselves and not just a means to an end. Um, And I know that that's not how global leadership thinks about people, employees, right? But even if you think about employees as a means to an end, you would have to think about how investment in your employees is going to accomplish a better means to an end. So even from that very um, basic, you know, investment perspective, I don't understand why more companies aren't doing what you both are doing um, in terms of trying to take care of people. And you know, I'm far outside of the corporate world, and so I think that's a question I have for corporations, like why aren't you doing these things that we know are better for your people and better for your companies to begin with? As an individual, I think if I were talking to corporations as a potential employee, I would, I think your advice is great, Bart, to ask for those specific concrete examples not just about these types of things, but culture in general. Um, What is the culture in terms of valuing the people who work there? Um, And I think that this is one of those areas where you can talk a lot, but asking for those specifics will tell you a much greater story than you know. just asking the general question about, about culture. Um, I'm so interested in all of these ideas that you're all putting out there um, and doing. I'm curious if you're evaluating any of them to see if they are leading to better outcomes. I'm sure that they are, but I'd be a, I'm, a, I'm a quantitative researcher, so I'm always interested in data. Um, and so that's another thing that I, I would be interested in asking companies you know have you evaluated these efforts to see are they working and in what ways and then how can those be replicated in other ways you know maybe the peer support works for some groups of people maybe the coaching works for other groups of people and maybe there's this third group who's not being reached you know how can we replicate other um iterations of these ideas to to reach even more people
0: brilliant love it another thing that you mentioned there too is you know the quantitative part and also because of working having you know worked in, in hr and talent management very famous thing company surveys right you know satisfaction surveys like this is the company's way of saying you know we care about you we value your opinion and very often um and this is interesting too it's not just about having you know a people uh, department or area or hr or talent management making sure that those folks are empowered as well too to really do a survey and do it well, takes a lot longer than a lot of times management is really willing to recognize. And, and if you really want people to feel like they're, you know, they're, they're being heard, you're gonna have to spend probably more time than you might think is necessary. And, and also asking, finding out what questions you need to ask. I think that's a really, really good point. That being said, though, unfortunately, we only have three more minutes. Um, I wanna get final thoughts from, from Andrea, from Julia. Um, what do you take from this session and any recommendations one thing that you you would recommend to our audience for things that they should keep in mind. We'll start it with you, Andrea. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to Pat for having
2: me. Uh, Erin, yes. Data, data, data. I love it. Um, Obviously uh, I am collecting data, so I'm hoping maybe we can get in touch and then how much, uh, how much can we become a bit more predictive in, in the way we use things. Um, I really, really liked um, having this conversation. Um, My passion is still like mental health and looking after people, even though my career is not in that anymore. It's still something that is very dear to me. So having these conversations uh, with a wider audience uh, in my new like change of career for me is fantastic because it's connecting my old, my old path with my new. um, And uh, I'm very grateful for all the experience I've had and I'm happy to Um, you know have conversations with people who might not feel um, you know as 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 um, as supported in their company and if they want to have conversations like how they can contribute um, um, at container solutions if that's something they're interested in uh, absolutely Um, uh, Julia lovely to meet you um, as well and um, yeah let's see if we can connect on some other issues as well in the HR side
0: of things agreed Julia final thought final
3: thoughts. Um, well, again, thank you, Bart, for organizing this and for having um, all of us and for having me here. It's been really wonderful. This, um, this topic, you know, is really important to me. And it, it wasn't a couple of years ago, because I never thought I'd be, you know, having to deal with mental health and, you um, I've become such a huge advocate of this world and you know taking care of ourselves. So I think it's it's really important to have the dialogue. It's really important, again, as I mentioned, to let people know that they're not alone and just to be able to talk about things. You know, we're we're shy to do that because we think somebody won't understand, or maybe we're embarrassed that we're doing, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. But I think, you know, that humanity, again, with the shared experiences, like. It's okay to talk about things and there are people who will listen and there are people who have experienced you know similar things so i am I'm, I'm very excited and very proud and very just thrilled to see more of this happening especially in in the tech space so thank you again for for having us
0: good and once again very easy to continue the conversations get in the CNCF slack check out the burnout group check out all the stuff that container solutions is doing um, we're definitely gonna be dropping links as well too for the research that Aaron is doing at the University of San Francisco, fantastic university, my mom went there too, much love. Um, so anyway, this has been very good. As usual, in all of our live streams, it would be a shame, it would be a crime to finish this without sharing you the beautiful artwork that our artist, Ankh has been creating while we've been talking. Um, so this is a live drawing of all the things that were being mentioned, well, probably not all of them, but a very, very good representation. So we have that as a memory that we can take. We'll be sharing this on social media. Thank you all so much for your time today. It's a shame we had to wait so long to have this conversation, but I'm really glad we got to do it and hopefully can have more. Um, Thank you all for joining us. Like I said, we'll be putting links in the description for everybody so you can get in touch and and see what they're doing. And take care. Seriously, I really mean that. To take care of others, first, you got to take care of yourself. Be proactive.